Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number two, my chat with Dutch juggler Niels Dunker. Thanks to our sponsors, the International Juggling Association, Todd Smith, the juggler's friend, maker of the Assassin Club, the one with deadly accuracy, and to the Renegade Jugglers, who I saw this last weekend in Santa Cruz. A big congratulations to Iman from Renegade Juggling for winning a big clown prize in Italy. Now sit back, drop everything, listen to me chat with Dutch juggler, Niels Dunker. Welcome to the podcast, Niels Dunker. This is podcast two of the Drop Everything podcast for the International Juggling Association. Welcome, Niels Dunker. Hello. And Niels, am I saying that right? Is the last name pronounced Dunker? Dunker, yes. Dunker. So, Niels, what was your first memory of juggling, the first juggler that you saw? There were two. I don't know which one was the first, but I remember the Rotterdam Street Performing Festival. My father always took me there, and it was uh, a busker. And he had a huge crowd, and he was juggling, yeah, like clubs, knives, like all the standard stuff. So I remember that. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool if you can uh, stop so many people in the street, make them happy, and do a show. So that's one thing I remember. And the other thing that was, I must have been around eight years old, and they had a circus festival in Paris, Cirque du Domaine. They had it on television. And um, I remember one juggler, and he did a routine with uh, silicon balls, some ball juggling, ball bouncing, ball rolling. And that inspired me so much that after that show, I went uh, to my room, and I tried to juggle. And, of course, I couldn't do it because I didn't know any patterns. So I tried for maybe half an hour, and then I gave up. And then when I was 12, I started again because then in my class, one of my friend's fathers, he could juggle a little bit. And, um, yeah, they started me how to learn the cascade, and uh, that's how I started. And from the beginning, were you kind of hooked? Did you uh, start to juggle regularly after that? Uh, yeah, I really liked it. But also before, I think even when I was eight, I really liked it already. I was always like uh, with, with table tennis, I liked the precision of uh, hitting a ball. And then with juggling, of course, you have more balls, so you need more precision. So I already well, yeah, I was into that aspect, like throwing, catching, precision, practice. and um, But yeah, I just didn't know how to do it. So then when I finally knew, I just kept going. Now, you're from the Netherlands, is that correct? Yes. Now, was there a circus program or circus school that you went to to train? Oh, that was thereafter. So I already was juggling. So I started when I was 12. And then, like six months later, I read in the newspaper there was the Rotterdam Youth Circus. It's called Circus Wojciechnor. And they had a, yeah, like a playground at a, at a festival in Rotterdam. And I saw that they had a, their, yeah, their boots set up. So then I took, yeah, asked my mom if we could go, could go there. So then I, uh, I met the people there, and then we called them to ask if I could sign up. I could sign up. So I spent about three to four years practicing at that youth circus. And did you feel you had a, a certain natural talent for juggling? Was it, did it come easy for you, or was it uh, quite difficult? Um, I don't know. Like I, I definitely know some people, some of my friends, they learned the tricks quicker. But also some people learned the tricks slower. But I was never, yeah, never really paying attention to that so much because I was just practicing myself, try to nail the trick and just having fun. And then I knew with time, then all the tricks, yeah, they would come to me as well. So how long after starting did you decide to pursue it as your profession? Uh, well, I started juggling when I was 12. <clears throat> then I did my first gig when I was 13. Was, I was just practicing juggling and then one of the people, a couple blocks down the road, they had a barbecue. And I said, okay, can you perform at my barbecue? And I was like, uh, oh, yeah, sure. So uh, that was my very first gig. I made like $7. They gave me 10 
so I thought it was really good because they gave me more than I asked for. But uh, yeah, so that was the first gig. And then when I was about 15, 16, with one of my other friends that I met at the youth circus, uh, we did a gig. And then on the way to the gig, we said like, hey, if we make a couple hundred each week, so that basically one gig, we can already make our living. So yeah, we should turn pro. So that was one deal that we kind of made and I kept my promise. So uh, a couple of years later, I turned uh, juggling full-time. So yeah, I think about when I was 15 or 16 years old. And you didn't come from a family background of circus. Were your parents encouraging of, of this profession? Um, yeah, kind of. They were and they were not. Like, um, because it's a kind of unusual career. So first I had to get used to the idea. But also when I really needed support to uh, push my uh, juggling shows further, they helped me. For example, I needed a video camera. To, uh, to make a promotion, promotional video. But yeah, cameras, especially back then, they were kind of expensive. So um, I said, I need a camera. And they said, well, we won't give you one, but we will lend you the money. And if it's really going to be that successful, as you say, that you're going to make more money doing more gigs that way, then you can earn uh, earn that money and pay us back. So uh, then we did a deal, and then after a year, I could pay them back. So when I really needed the support, the, the push, then they gave me it. And otherwise, also, they pushed me back. So it was a little bit like twofold. Now, did you meet any professional jugglers uh, during that time? Did they give you any advice or help you along? Um, yeah, so like the first when I was at the youth circus, they were like, of course, we're all children. But uh, yeah, one Jochem, he was 17 years old and he was doing some street performing, some small parties. So I learned a lot from him. And uh, then Bauke well, is a juggler, Bauke van Tongeren. Uh, he lives in Rotterdam and he was juggling full time. And he was like the number one. Uh, juggler in the Netherlands by that time and he he was very helpful as well so he always gave me tips and uh, yeah Michiel Hasseling from the Netherlands he uh, lives in Amsterdam from the Flying Dutchman he was always very friendly to me Erik Borgman so yeah like a lot of people but I met him at juggling festivals and so I asked him to teach me a trick and he always did that so uh, yeah some people helping me. And then what year did you come to your first IJA convention were you still quite young at that point? Uh, I was 20, and it was um, in 2006, because I met uh, Ivan Purcell and Scotty Kavanagh and uh, Tim Rootberry. I met them earlier at the 2004 World Juggling Federation convention, and I got invited for that one to, uh, to compete, because the year earlier, we had booked Jason Garfield um, for a masterclass in the Netherlands. I had organized that, so Jason Garfield came to the Netherlands in 2003, 2004, he invited me. And then uh, so I met Ivan Purcell there, and in 2006 I met Ivan again. That was at the Scottish Juggling Convention, and Ivan said, "Okay, it should be fun. You come over to the IJA. You have never been. It's a cool convention. Then after the convention, you can stay with me in Las Vegas, and uh, yeah, it should be fun." So I was like, "Okay, that sounds good." So I uh, increased my promotion a bit, did more shows, made the money, and then in 2006 in the summer, I came over to the U.S. and attended my first IJA convention. So your first convention in the United States was WJF. What do you yeah. see as the differences between the WJF and the IJA? Um, I don't know because the 2000, uh, like um, the World Juggling Federation, I attended in 2004 and then I attended it one day in 2006 when I was, uh, yeah, there was after the IJA and then Jason Garfield had his convention there as well. So I lost track a bit about the World Juggling Federation. I've not followed them so much. So I cannot so much say about their direction right now. But uh, yeah, the IJA, I really uh, 
like the association and I have a great time and it helped me a lot in my career as well. So you started off juggling in the Netherlands. What kind of jobs were available for you starting out? Did you busk? I heard you use the expression busker, which is uh, another word for street performer. Was that something you did early on in your career? Uh, yeah, like uh, when I started juggling, some of my friends they were joking like, hey, you should, uh, you should go street performing. And I think I took that expression a bit more serious than uh, they took their joke. But yeah, so I put, a, put a, a hat in front of me in the local shopping mall. And I made some money with that, and I got a good experience. Uh, it was actually quite fun, and uh, that kept me going. And also, um, I remember one time in Rotterdam, with a juggling shop, they had bouncing balls, and they were 50 guilders, so that's, yeah, maybe like $50 these days. And I really wanted to have them, but I didn't have the money. Uh, so I said, uh, okay, if you can reserve those balls, then I will go street performing, do a couple of shows, then I will make that money this afternoon, and then before the shop closed, I will come back and buy the balls. And uh, I think I was 15 years old by that time. And that happened. So I, I bought the balls and then uh, went home with a set of juggling balls that I earned that afternoon. But yeah, that's how I started. And then also when I was 14, printed my first business card and then did a couple like local gigs. And then from those gigs, other people see me for uh, yeah small gigs around my town. So I, yeah, so I did a little bit of street performing and I got also uh, booked for those small parties around my time. So what was the first job you did that where you left the Netherlands and actually traveled to an engagement? And was that a long-term gig or a one-nighter? What was that? Uh, well, the first like real international gig was in 2007. And it was three months in Japan because I knew that like, I needed the States time. And with all this one-time small corporate events, festivals, every time when you show up, the environment is different. You never know how the stage is going to look. You have very little rehearsal time with uh, the sound tech, the light tech. So it's just very hard to improve. And yeah, you need the stage time to get better. So um, actually, like in 2006, after I visited Ivan Purcell, I also visited Scotty Kavanaugh in San Diego. And um, in 2004, he performed in a, a Dutch theme park called House and Boss in Japan. And that um, the theme park, it's like a yeah, miniature version of a Dutch city. So you have a lot of famous buildings from the Netherlands in that theme park. And uh, so he did his full show there, like 20 minutes, his own show. I was like, oh, that sounds like a very cool experience. Like you can visit, yeah, see a little bit of the Netherlands in Japan, be out, yeah, be out of the country, four shows a day, six, uh, six days a week. So I submitted my uh, promotional material to the theme park and they accepted me and then they hired me for, for three months. So uh, I put together a 20-minute stage show for that, and then uh, yeah, did it a few hundred times during those three months, and uh, yeah, got a great experience. So you traveled from the Netherlands to experience the Netherlands in Japan. Yeah, yeah, it was quite funny because the bay where the theme park is located is very close to the first uh, point where the Netherlands, like because you had the East Indian Trading Company and the West Indian West Indian Trading Company, so 400 years ago, one ship sailed all the way from Rotterdam and ended up in that bay in Japan. And then, uh, yeah, they started their 400-year trading relationship between the Netherlands and Japan. And I started my journey in Rotterdam because that's where I live. And then I ended up in that bay and did my first uh, international gig there. So is that some advice you give to a young uh, up-and-coming wannabe professional? The fact that it's good to find a spot to do many shows. So you're saying, how many did you do in that three months? O over 100, you said? or? Well, I did 20 shows each week. 
and I was there for 12 weeks or 13 weeks. So that's like 260 shows. And what do you think you learned by doing the shows so many times? Did you experiment with each show? Did you try to get a set? Uh, did you count your drops? How did you sort of try to improve over that period of time? Well, during that time, it so much uh, gave me the, the opportunity to get consistent. I already didn't drop that much on stage because, yeah, I always practice the tricks enough times that I'm pretty sure that I'm going to nail it in the show. Just so many shows get you very consistent. And also, during those three months, some days you feel more happy, some days you feel more down, sometimes you're tired, sometimes you have more energy. So it also forces you to do the show under every circumstance. Can you give us some examples of uh, some of the tricks you were doing? So you're doing a 20-minute show, and you're outside, I imagine. Uh, no, actually, the stage show was partly indoors. So it was, there was a roof above the stage, and also the audience that were sitting under that same roof. But then from the side, it was open. So if it was very windy, it was more difficult. Like my last trick was eight rings, so that was a hard one. If it was very windy, then the rings would blow away. Um, so it was like, yeah, it was it was not totally outside. But then the roving sets, I did a few of those each day as well, just walking around on a spot in the theme park that was outside. So during those sets, it was more interaction with the audience. And during the stage, it was a, a stage set. So I did more juggling to music routines. And what and were the, some the of the, the high points? So you say you did eight rings. What are some other things you, you did during that set? Uh, so my structure for that 20-minute uh, set is I started off with contact juggling. I did that for about two minutes. And then I went to uh, the hat juggling. I did a hat routine with one hat and three hats. Then I did uh, my routine with, with the five balls, five balls. Uh, then I did seven balls. Then for a while, I did uh, the trick with the pockets, the balls, and then putting them in the three pockets that you have on your belt. But that, that the reaction was not so great, so I uh, threw it out of the routine pretty early on, and then I went to the one routine uh, with a volunteer, and that was interesting because, of course, I speak English, I speak Dutch, but I don't speak Japanese, and the audience members they all speak Chinese or Japanese in that uh, theme park, so it was a great opportunity actually because you needed to interact with the audience, but you cannot speak to that audience. And that's, yeah, very beneficial because now I do a lot of cruise ships, especially in Europe. And in Europe, on the cruises, you have people from Spain, Italy, Norway, Norway, like all over the place. Everybody has a different language. So sometimes it's more difficult to communicate with those people as well. So it really forced me to, uh, to make myself clear without using, uh, yeah, words, just body language, clear, yeah, just clear instructions. And it's very beneficial as well because even now, if I speak English in my show and it's all native speakers, you're still more clear because you think about how to give instructions, your body language, just so much better. So I did that, and then I went to the ring route, um, no, the clubs, went from three to seven clubs, with seven I did a flash, and then I went to have close on the ring, so from four to eight rings, and that was the 20-minute set I did. Now, I know you've competed in some circus competitions. Were there any awards or, or competitions that stand out? How many circus competitions did you say you did overall? Um, well, I did um, in the Netherlands. You have the national juggling competition. So I did that a few times, and I got three times a gold medal over there. Um, I did the IJA. I, in, I made it once to the, to the finals. 
This is one I tried. And then the Extreme Juggling Championships, the, I, the IJA in 2006. That was a fun one. And then I got one you know, gold medal over there. And then um, I got invited to uh, Taiwan by Sui Liao. He got the Bobby May Award at the IJA. And he has his own circus competition festival in Taiwan. So in 2009, I got invited and I got two prizes. I got a prize for best juggling act and best act overall. So it was a, that was a good one. I was very happy with that. Um, yeah, those are, I think those are the competitions I did. Now, you've done a lot of a wide variety of different types of shows. What, uh, what are your preferences? Do you, do you like a particular thing over something else? I know you do cruises. What is your sort of dream job? Uh, that's a, a tough one because first, what's my dream? Then at one point you master it and then you want to you get your next challenge. So first, my dream was like, a, oh, if I just can get invited to a street performing festival and do my own show there, then uh, that would be awesome. So, But then in 2004, that happened. And then I did those from 2004 to 2007. And then I felt very comfortable. So it's like, okay, what's the next, the next dream, the next challenge? It's like, wow, if I can uh, do that show, make it from a street show into a theater show. So that would be pretty cool if I can get books at a cruise ship. So that was my next dream. So and now I'm doing that, and it's it's a really great venue. So uh, and then yeah, also what I really enjoyed, I did uh, maybe five years at a theater restaurant in Rotterdam. So I uh, could work at home, different stuff, practice, and then in the evening, I did my show in the in the restaurant, and that was great. And then in the evening, I was still home, could sleep in my own bed. So. Uh, yeah, so it's every venue has something good, and um, and every venue, if you do it very long, at one point it gets repetitive. So, but yeah, I like I like the cruise ships now. It's a nice venue. It's uh, you get very good support in the theater to do your show very well. Um, yeah, let's talk about cruise ships a little bit because maybe some of our listeners that might be a, a goal for them. How much time do do they expect you to do, and, and what are some of the conditions you find yourself working under in cruise ships? Um, the amount of time to start off with that, it depends on which, which, what you get booked for. My first cruise ship contract was with Royal Caribbean, and then I got booked for the Welcome Aboard show and the Farewell show. And for that spot on that cruise line, they asked for a 20 to 25 minute show. So actually, I submitted my promo, or like the video that I did of the show in Team Park House in Boss. So I submitted my 20 minute show. To, uh, to the agents, and then I got booked with that spot. So, um, and, but now what I mostly do is the headliner spot on various cruise lines, and the standards, kind of the standard format that they do on the cruise ships. So for that, they require about a 45-minute show, something between 43 minutes and, yeah, just under 50. That's a good time frame. And, yeah, pretty much all the cruise lines, they use that. But if you work for a Disney cruise line, they ask for a 30-minute show. And then you must have two different 30-minute shows, one that's more for the adults and one that's more for the kids. And you cannot repeat material. So to get on board for Disney, you need at least 60 minutes of material. And if they need an extra show, then it's 70 minutes. That's what you need to prepare for that. And now I see a trend with the cruise lines that they not only ask for a 45-minute show, but they ask a half a show more. So basically, you need to travel with a 45-minute set and another 25-minute set. So that's about the time that you need. And then there's one other cruise line, Princess Cruises. 
I've never done that spot, but that's um, more like a street theater kind of spot in the middle of the ship. And I think there you need a, a 15 minute set and you repeat that three times a day. Now, how much movement do you experience on this ship? I know they, they have the stabilizers, but would you say that's something that really comes into factor, the amount the ship moves, or have they pretty much eliminated that, that uh, element? Well, it depends, because the bigger the ship, the less you feel the movement. So if it's a small ship, for example, if it's a luxury cruise line and there are like 500 passengers on board, it's a small ship, so they will get thrown around more when the sea is rough. If you're like on a huge ship from, for example, Royal Caribbean, the ship is so big and it's mostly in the Met or like other, yeah, like the Mediterranean, the sea is normally very calm. You don't feel any any motion. So then it's the same as you work on land in, for example, uh, a big casino in Las Vegas because the showrooms, you can compare, yeah, the type of showroom at sea with the showrooms in Las Vegas. So it's, yeah, it depends from very little to a lot. But I would say if you're going to work on cruise ships, just be be prepared that it's going to move a lot. So basically, if you're, you have a prop stand, don't put wheels under it. Make sure that uh, you can lock it. And also uh, practice every trick so well that you can do it when she is rough. So uh, Earl Shefford from Australia, he gave me a very good tip when I started out cruise ships. He said, like, if you can do every trick in your show on a roller bola, then it's safe to, to put it in your cruise ship show. So that's what I did when I started out. And now, it was pretty extreme. You don't need it, but yeah, it's good practice. So how many cruise ships would you say you've done? So you started your career, let's say, in, on cruises in 2006 or so. When did you start your career on cruises? Um, my first ship was in 2009 because finished Japan 2007, submitted my video in 2008, and then it took about a year for my agent to uh, to get my first cruise ship contract. So in 2009 was my first one, and it was the week immediately the week after I graduated from mechanical engineering. And since then, I have done about 45 different ships. There's a list on my website, but it's about 45. So you mentioned you have a degree in uh, mechanical engineering. Do you think going yeah. to school and getting a degree, has that given you a, a different background with your juggling? Do you ever use that in... in in somehow in your career now? Uh, I use yeah, different different ways because I remember it, in mechanical engineering, the very first day that, uh, that I went there, one of the professors, he said like, uh, these days, the knowledge gets old very fast. So everything, a lot of the stuff we, you're gonna learn in the next couple of years uh, is not usable after you graduate it. But what we very make ourselves proud of is uh, the way we you, you start to think the Delft University uh, way of thinking. So basically they give you all the, every eight weeks, they give you a big project and you have to design something and you don't, you don't, you know nothing about that subject and you, you don't know how to approach it, but in eight weeks you need to be an expert on it. So that's a huge task, but somehow after two months, you always made it work. And that's the same with a, with a cruise ship contract, like for a juggler to fill more than 70 minutes of material. It's a big task. And then when I started out, it almost felt impossible. But then it felt as impossible as doing an assignment at university. So it really helped me just to break it down, go act by act. And at the end, you make it work. So that was very useful to me. And now also some routines, I noticed that the props in the juggling shops that you can buy, I don't like them. Or for that tricks, I cannot buy them. So now recently I started uh, using my mechanical engineering 
knowledge to do, yeah to produce my own props. So I made some shaker cups, I made some balancing sticks, all with uh, yeah the knowledge that I learned at mechanical engineering. Now I know you like to go see a lot of shows. Uh, are there any shows or jugglers that stand out and have they inspired you in different ways? Um, well, the huge inspiration was Anthony Gatto, and I really wanted to see him. But every time when I was kind of close or in the city where he was performing, so when I was at the World Juggling Federation convention in 2004 in Las Vegas, then Anthony Gatto was booked in Germany. Then I was visiting my friend Valentino Bikovac. I was very close with him, uh, yeah, about 10 years ago. Every time I was in Germany, then Anthony Gatto was performing in Las Vegas. So it never worked out. But in 2006, before I heard that he went to Cirque du Soleil, it's like, okay, now I have to see him. So I bought an airplane ticket, flew to Germany, and uh, so is 12 minutes so. 12 minute long show. That was great. So it inspired me a lot. And yeah, so I saw um, Chris Cremo at the Royal Circus in Amsterdam, the Winter Circus. So there was huge inspiration. And then uh, Ivan Purcell, very inspiring. So yeah, especially for the cruise ship shows, there's so many aspects that come into play because if you only juggle, it's not going to work. If you only talk, it's not going to work as well because they book a juggling show. So I need a lot of different aspects. So uh, Valentino Vigilac was a huge inspiration in the variety shows in Germany, juggling to music. Uh, Christopher Rodigel from the Netherlands, huge inspiration for Freddie Canton. So those are kind of the jugglers that uh, really influenced me. And uh, of course, the Rispini brothers. Of course, of course. Uh, now as you're doing more comedy in your show, what's the transition between doing a straight juggling act to music then you felt the need to add more time, to add more comedy, especially as since English is not your first language. Did you find that uh, as challenging as learning the juggling to learn the, the comedy aspect of it? Um, well, the English was just, I learned it and learned it in school. And then the first show was very, very difficult, very scary. Of course, you need to build up your vocabulary of, of jokes and phrases that you can say, the same as you need to build uh, the juggling tricks to build an act. But yeah, the big difference between juggling to music and a full theater show, basically a full theater show comedy juggling, is that every time it just gets a level deeper. First, you, you learn how to juggle, you can do the tricks. First time you step on stage, well, it's not really about the tricks, but you need to learn how to present it. And then you can present it maybe to music. So that's a level deeper. You need to learn how to juggle, you can juggle, you present yourself as a on stage as a person. You have to move to the music. Then, when you combine it with comedy, then for me, like I do the comedy between the juggling routines, so there was another level deeper. So I needed to speak English, be funny, speak clearly. So every time to me, it's, it's a level deeper. And also, every show it has a build-up. So for the juggling to music. Normally you go from less props to more props, smaller props to bigger props. So from uh, less impressive to more impressive. So it builds. The same with a comedy. You have to place all the tricks in a certain way that in the program altogether from beginning to end, there's a build-up. So where do you see your, your future? Where do you see your career going? And have you seen things change in the business from when you started to now? Yeah, a lot. For example, the very first gig, I still had to uh, bring an audio cassette to the gig for the music, and now it's with an iPhone to bring the music on an MP3. 
that of course that's a that's a minor change but even in the cruise ship industry i noticed from between five years ago and now that they they book different now the before it was like a i got for one year like immediately bookings for an entire year and now they go they book per cruise so sometimes that's good because you like uh oh i have a little gap in my schedule and then like two weeks before it still got filled so the way they booked it it's already different and also the amount of material that they ask that's different as well but also the way audiences they uh, they watch the show it's different as well because before people were watching but now everybody has a, a video camera on them they have their smartphone and they think it's okay to film your show and to post it on the internet so that's a big difference as well instead of just being an audience member they more now judge the show. They used to, yeah, put it in YouTube, give it a rating. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know. But it's it's definitely it's a different thing. Now, uh, what do you have lined up for the rest of the year? So, how far in advance are your bookings now? Then, since you say they kind of book last minute, do you have other things for the rest of the year? Do you have your rest of the year planned out, or does it kind of come in piece by piece? Uh, right now, it's up to November, and I have a rough idea for next year as well. And also what I did, now cruise ships is the main market, but I, I, for example, I have three different websites. I still, I enjoy to do different types of gigs. So cruise ships I do a lot, but I also do corporate events at home. Uh, after this next cruise, when I'm back home, I do a TV interview in the Netherlands. I do a theater show and also juggling workshops. It's quite popular in the Netherlands, like team building juggling workshops. So it's really interesting. The same that I like all these different uh, juggling props. I do about 10 different types of juggling in my show. I enjoy that versatility. And it's the same in my gigs. I like to do all the different types of gigs. Now give us your websites. We'll put them up at the end of the podcast on a screen so people can go. Where can they go to watch your, your work? Where can they go to see an example well, of Niels Dunker? Well, the international website that I promote my theater shows, uh, cruise ship shows and some casino shows with that's newsdunker.com but I bought another URL because I know American people like it got confused by the spelling of my name so that's comedyjuggler.com that's my international website and then that's purely for the Netherlands and it's uh, jongleur.nl and jongleur is the Dutch word for juggler and .nl is the, the Dutch extension so that's the, the entertainment corporate gigs or you, should I send them to you and you type them? Yeah, you send them to us and we'll put them on a screen at the okay. very end of the podcast. Now, how about ending with a couple of uh, interesting stories? I know you recently had an experience on the cruise ships where you got to watch the ship sail away without you. Can you yes. give, Do you have a couple of stories we can end with and then we'll wrap up the podcast, Niels? Um, yeah, sure. Well, that was, uh, that was an interesting one because I got booked at the MGM Grand Casino in Las Vegas. And then I uh, finished that contract. And then immediately thereafter, like I only had like 48 hours between Las Vegas and his cruise ship contract. But I had to fly to the Netherlands, repack, and then from the Netherlands fly all the way to Asia, to Myanmar, that's even further than India. So the connection was just too tight. And then by bad luck, also the port agent, he, did, he was not there. So nobody was waiting for me to drive me straight to the ship because we only had like an hour and a half between arriving and the uh, departure of the ship. So I had to ha yeah, find a taxi driver 
and it was just too tight. And since the port agent was not communicating with the, the cruise ship, they didn't know. So I saw this ship sailing away after flying for 48 hours. So that, that was really annoying. That was one story. Another story that was, um, yeah, it was a bad one. There was uh, at a Christmas circus in the Netherlands. So um, I got signed a contract and then I went to that show, but then accommodation was not arranged for me. And um, so the, the circus director said like, yeah, you can sleep at the, the ring, at the, the edge of the, the circus ring. And then later we'll find your caravan, but the first night you just sleep in the, in the ring. I was like, no, I cannot do that. So that was, um, so they did a show and yeah, it was very bad. So they didn't, all their, uh, their promises, they didn't kept that. That was not a horror story that I uh, experienced. So those are two of the bad ones, but also some true juggling. You get some amazing uh, opportunities as well. One time I got booked on a cruise, it goes all the way to the North Pole to see the Northern Polar Ice. That was, that was amazing. And I've been to uh, the South Pole with juggling into Australia so yeah it goes from super high to like like really bad experience that people also almost not kind of relate to so really high to, to really low but it keeps it very interesting like all this experience that if I went with mechanical engineering and got accepted for an office job all those stuff would never been in my life so let's end now Nilos with your top three bits of advice for people wanting to become professional jugglers can you sum it up in like three three pieces of advice for them yeah, so I think number one is just go for it. You have to get the experience just to, out, to be able to do it. You have to go out and do it. So uh, you don't need permission from anybody. Just if you want to do a show, you can go to a, a nursery home. You can go to a kid's childcare center, any place where people are willing to watch. Just go out and offer your show. And since those gigs in the beginning, you will not, probably don't get paid. It's a voluntary show. The good thing is you also cannot get fired. And if they're complaining, hey, they're complaining about a free show. So that's the, the risk is very low, so you can try out stuff. So it's it's a great opportunity. So number one would be um, get experience, you're saying. Get to as many shows as possible in many different situations as possible. So go out, do it, and, and get experience. That would be your first bit of advice. That's a good one. Yeah, not as many shows, but yeah, a good amount of shows. And always think, what can I learn from it? See it as a learning opportunity. And when the learning opportunity is there, Go for it. And another one is, um, yeah, just learn to enjoy juggling. Just, I think everybody that's listening is really enjoying juggling. But if you're performing, you also make sure make sure that the tricks are solid. If if you're an amateur juggler and you practice all the time and you nail it once, it's great. But but if you're on stage, you must be pretty confident about that you're gonna nail the tricks. So for example, when I met Rudy Horn. He told me, like, uh, before you do a trick in the show, make sure that you can nail it eight times out of ten attempts. So that's another piece of advice. Just make sure that you really can do the tricks. Because sometimes you, know, you don't have time to warm up. The lighting is bad. But still, people expect. They, they don't give you excuse for it. They see you drop, so you're not very good. So that's another piece of advice. And the third one is... Uh, let me see. Well, how important have a mentor has been to you? Because I know you and Freddie Kenton, that he, uh, you work with him a lot. Would you say to search out other jugglers maybe is, is a really good learning tool? Um, well, 
Yeah, I think that's a good one. Learn always from people that are more experienced to you. For example, uh, you know, it's uh, as good as me, like with a comedy. When I started out, English is not my first language. And with all the cruise ships, I would not have gotten the success if you were not willing to help me out. Because, yeah, you told me so much about speak clearly, speak slowly, look at the important points in a joke. What do you want to yeah, put across and cut all the, the, the extra stuff to make it more clear? So, yeah, look for the people that already have, have done it. So with a comedy, you're, yeah, like the top in the world with juggling Freddie Canton, great inspiration because he has so many tricks, so many unique tricks that I cannot see anywhere else. So, yeah, I'm lucky that he's uh, given me advice with that. So, yeah, just every point, like uh, with the costumes, with the music, go for people that's their specialty and that you can learn. And then... Sometimes can be very hard because they say like, oh, okay, it's not going anywhere. You're not very good at it yet. But instead of putting your ego up, just listen, just keep your mouth shut and take it in. Because the fact that they're spending time on you just to give you feedback already means they're helping you. So it's not, maybe you, they're giving you tips that you don't want to hear because you have an ego. But if you can calm down and really listen to it, look, look for the knowledge in there then you can benefit from it instead of just uh, speaking up. Well, thank you, Niels. You've given us a lot to think about. You've given us a lot of wisdom. Best of luck in your future career. I know I'll be seeing you pretty soon in, uh, in South Korea. Korea. We have a show we're doing together. I'm really looking forward to that. And, of course, we'll continue our conversations and our, our comedy lessons uh, in the future. Once again, thank you so much for podcast number two, my interview with Niels Dunker. Thank you, Niels. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that chat with the hardest working juggler in show business, Niels Dunker. Thanks to the sponsors, the International Juggling Association, Todd Smith, and Renegade Juggling. Now, stick around after the podcast if you'd like to hear silence because the podcast is over.